Well, I don't know how many of you have, uh, if you have Google pictures and it pops up, you know, where were you, you know, memory from a year ago or two years ago. I didn't need that to pop up for me this morning. I was thinking about where was I last year at this time? What was I doing? I remember I came on the Christmas Eve morning. I thought, you know, we had a lot of rain. We'd had a lot of snow and ice. I just better come and make sure everything's okay. And I opened the door, and I saw this glistening on the floor in the foyer area, and it was all water. That was what we were doing. And then I quickly called people, and we had shop vacs, and, uh, you know, and we were hard at work vacuuming things up, and we were able to, though, have the Christmas Eve service uh, the next day. So I don't know why I shared that. It just, well, I shared that, I think, because... It is good to remember, and to remember also, you know, what feels like disaster at a moment sometimes in our lives, that uh, God writes longer stories. And, uh, and so maybe you're feeling like that in your life this morning, and just to be encouraged that God writes great longer stories. So before we get into the message this morning, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, this morning, uh, come to you, thank you, thankful that we are meeting in a dry, warm place. And Lord, we recognize that you did not come to a dry, warm place, and that there are many in the world who are not in a dry, warm place. And that's why you came. And you came not to, to show, Lord, that you are the same God that you have always told us that you are, but a God that is not self-serving and self-seeking, but a God who gives so generously, who came to be with your people to show us, Lord, in the deepest possible way that you are the God who is with us, who loves us, who came to rescue and to redeem us, Lord, to restore to us a relationship with you, a relationship with creation, Lord. And Lord, as we open up your word to, today, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, even as we open up your word, that you would open up our eyes, that we would see new and glorious things from your word. Amen. Well, I know it's Christmas Eve morning, but it's time to unwrap a gift. All right, we've been unwrapping the names of Jesus over this Advent season. And I want to have a little experiment, imagination. You're going to have to use your imagination briefly. Suppose that after you get home from this service, you find on your front doorstep a huge box with your name on it. And suppose you look at the note that is attached to that box and it says, contained in this box is what you have been looking for all your life. What would you expect to find in that box? A big bundle of cash? Happiness? Peace? Good health? Maybe a magic formula for staying forever young. Well, would it be freedom from suffering? A brand new start. 
what would that box need to have to really satisfy what you want in life? What exactly is, is it that you are looking for? That is the question, actually, that Jesus posed to his disciples who had begun to follow him when John the baptizer had said to them when they saw Jesus passing by, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this one, you will find just what you have been looking for. But what was it that they were looking for? What was it about John's identification with Jesus as the Lamb of God that prompted them to bet everything that they had on Jesus? What were they hoping and expecting to find in that ultimate gift box called Jesus, the Lamb of God? Well, let's unwrap this name and see if we can find out. I invite you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day, it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. And the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Well, what did John mean when he referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Why would John's disciples, who had been following him, leave him and follow Jesus? Why would they want to? Well, there are various ways this unique title, the Lamb of God, has been understood. Unique in terms of only John uses it exactly in that way. And all of the suggestions of this, ways to understand this title are rooted in Israel's story and in their holy scriptures. And so, it's helpful to explore them. And just before we do, I wonder, do you know any famous lambs or rams in Israel's history? And don't say the Los Angeles rams. That's not in Israel's history. Okay. Abraham. Yep. Any other famous lambs or rams? Isaac. Yes. So the one where it's a, it's a substitute he was a ram caught. Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, and God gives a substitute one. Any others? Passover. Yeah, that's a pretty famous one, right? Well, we're going to start with that one, and then we'll see how you're doing on the other, and the, the two that have been mentioned. Let's start first with the Passover ram. 
the Passover lamb. This was central to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. So Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. And, uh, and then God sends Moses to help deliver them. And he has been sending plagues. And then it comes to, and Pharaoh just refuses to let them go. And then finally we come to Exodus chapter 12. And God says, now he's going to let you go. And there's this ceremony that they go through called the Passover. And he tells the community, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each person is to take a lamb for his family, one from each household. The animals you choose must be your old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And when I see the blood, that is the angel of death goes, and when he sees the blood, I will pass over you and you will be spared. And just a note, a, a lamb, the Hebrew word can mean a lamb or a kid, which is a young goat, right? Either and so in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 14, actually in that chapter, John makes sure to point out that Jesus' death is happening, he will say, on the day of preparation. Preparation for what? For Passover. And so at the time, Jesus will die at the time when the Passover lambs were being killed for the Passover. So John, I think, is making the connection in that way. Although he doesn't use the specific word that's used for Passover lamb, Pascha, to, re to refer to Jesus. And so maybe there's some additional ideas going on. The other one that you mentioned, the lamb or ram that God provided as a replacement for Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. So that story, Ab Isaac was his... Abraham's unique son. And God, and as he's growing, and God says, you know, all the blessings are going to come through this son. And then God tells him, now I want you to go and sacrifice your only son. And Abraham goes through with this. And at the moment when, well, look in, in Genesis 22. And Isaac, as the Abraham and, and his father, I mean, Abraham and his son Isaac are going to a place in the wilderness where he's going to have a sacrifice, Isaac says, you know, we've got everything here except the lamb for the offering. Where's that, Dad? And Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so he's about to go through with this. And then an angel of the Lord calls out to him, and he says, do not lay a hand on the boy. And Abraham, and then, uh, you know, now I know that you fully trust me. And then Abraham looks up, and there, caught in a thicket, is a ram caught by the horns. And he goes over to the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering, it says, instead of his son, the one that God provided. In ways I don't think that Abraham knew, but he sure was glad that God provided an alternate. Now, this was a ram, not a lamb, although... Uh, lamb and goats can be quite similar in, in the, both from the flock in Hebrew understanding. Now, there's no clear reference to taking away sins here, but there is famous sacrifices also that were involved in taking away the sins of people. 
Any famous ones that you know of with that? That's right, the ram that you released into the wilderness. You guys are good. Okay, so that is also called the yearly scapegoat, which was famous. So once a year in Leviticus, I know Leviticus isn't the most entertaining reading, but there's some great important stories in there. And one of them in Leviticus chapter 16 is the ceremony that takes place once a year. The priest is to offer an animal for his own sins, but then they're also to take two from the flock, goats in this case, and the one is to be sacrificed for the sins, and the other is to have be a scapegoat. That is, Aaron is to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. They would place their hands on that and symbolically put all of their sins upon that goat. And then that would be sent far away where it would not return. Now I know if you're thinking, hey Dave, it's a goat, not a lamb. You're right. But the sacrifice, right, needed to come from the flock and included sheep and goats. And so I think this might also be a good option and some idea at work. There's another Famous offerings for sins that happened every single day. It was the daily offering of sacrificial lambs every morning and every evening in the temple. Exodus 29 is where we can see a little bit of where this is at work. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day, two lambs a year old, one in the morning and the other at twilight. And it will go on to say, for generations to come, this offering is to be made regularly at the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, the temple. And so this daily reminder that, you know, it is uh, by forgiveness that we live and are sustained. And then there's another famous lamb, another one in the Bible. Any ideas? It was, we were read, there was a reading this morning from Isaiah, the Lamb of God. So in Isaiah 53, there is one that says in verse 7, that is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And in Isaiah 53, we had, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And it will go on to say, For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He is his great substitute. And I think John the Baptist, when he first announced, Behold, you know, the Lamb of God. I think he probably expected a victorious Messiah. This is God's chosen one. He's going to finally free us. But remember when John the Baptist will get imprisoned, he kind of begins to have some doubts. It's not as victorious looking as he thought. And so it may be unlikely that he had this suffering servant, this lamb who gives his life for others. But as the story continues in the Gospels, it is clear that God had this in mind. After all, notice, where did John the Baptist get his idea that this is the Lamb of God? 
Remember he said, I, I didn't myself, I didn't know him. He doesn't mean he didn't know him. He was Jesus' cousin. But I didn't know this one who, that there's all these dimensions to him, that he is God's chosen one, the Messiah, which we've looked at some of the titles, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so God knew more than John the Baptist. And Jesus will actually make this connection when he will speak to his disciples. In Luke 22, verse 37, he will tell them, that in him the words of Isaiah 53 verse 12 will be fulfilled. That he will bear the sins of many. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus' followers make this connection too. In, in the book of Acts chapter 8, in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we looked at. Um, that, he, that he is the one, in this sense, the one who was that lamb that was led like a or led like a lamb to the slaughter, who was a substitute for the sins of the whole nation. Now there's one more lamb, famous one, left to explore. It's actually meant, mentioned in intertestamental writings. That is, between the Old Testament, where our, our Old Testament ends, and the New Testament begins, the Jews had some other writings in there, and it gives us some ideas into what they were hoping and expecting. And there is a special victorious lamb that appears there, which especially appears in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And so in Revelation chapter 5, for example, a God will unveil someone who alone is worthy to open the scroll. There's this scene there, and the scroll represents, I think, history and the destiny of, of history of the world. And there's this, John has been taken up into heaven, and, uh, and there's this question, like, who is worthy to open up to control the destiny of history? And there's no one. And John is just beginning to weep uncontrollably because I think he is thinking, then we are in, we're in the hands of the Caesars who are the big, uh, you know, controllers of the world, killing and plundering. Surely there is someone else who is actually worthy to take over the controls of history. And then uh, someone comes to him in the heavenly court and says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And John looks up, and I think he's probably expecting to see a lion. Lots of the ancient empires had lions in their courtyards and represented, I mean, that's power, right? And what does he see instead? A lamb, looking as, it ha as if it had been slain standing in the center before the throne of heaven. But this is no ordinary sacrificial lamb. For the lamb, it says, had seven horns, horns representing power, perfect power, seven eyes. That is, he can see everything. Numbers in Revelation, are, are sim there's a symbolism at work. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. That is God himself. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders, there's four creatures representing each of the animal kingdoms of the world, and then the 24 elders representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the, the new Israel, the 12 apostles. So it's all of creation and all of people that are gathered around, and they're all watching, and, and they fell down before the Lamb 
and they sang a new song. And it sounds just like Moses' song of the Exodus, this victory song. You are worthy because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. And later in chapter 17, verse 14, we are told how the Lamb will triumph over them. Who is them? That is all of the beastly empires, human and demonic. And why? Because he is the king, he is Lord of lords and king of kings. There are a lot of famous lambs in the Bible, aren't there? And the range of possible meanings for Jesus as the Lamb of God is significant. If we boil them down and look at similarities, clearly identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God marked him out as very, very special Lamb. And being one who takes away the sin of the world means he will do in a far greater and complete way what the Lamb sacrifices pointed to. True forgiveness of sin. A restored relationship with God. And so I think it is likely that John chose, or or rather it was chosen for him by God, this unique way of referring to Jesus as a way of pointing to the two main points of all that all of these lambs point to. A, the substitutionary sacrificial offering Jesus would become. He died, the New Testament writers say, for us, for us. And also, secondly, to the ultimate victory over all the powers of evil, not through lion power, through lamb power. Which brings me to the, so what difference does all of this make part of the message? What happened, we might wonder, to those early disciples of John who left everything to follow this unique Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Did they find everything that they were looking for in the Jesus box? When Jesus asked them, when they started following, he asked them, what do you want? And they discovered they couldn't even articulate what it was that they really, really wanted. Remember that imaginary box left on your doorstep, waiting for you when you get home. All of us, I think, are at least vaguely aware of a need, a hole in our lives, a vacuum. But many of us have no idea what will fill that void. We may shop around for some solution to try and fill it, hoping maybe we'll find it under the Christmas tree. Actor Jim Carrey once said, I wish that everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they would know that's not the answer. Many of us do not really know what it is that we seek. We may think it is one thing, money, security, fame, happiness, only to learn that's not the answer. The disciples bumbled about, and then they asked Jesus, where are you staying? That was their response to, what are you looking for? I don't know, maybe we'll ask you a question. And Jesus' response is, guys, come and see. 
And with those words, Jesus invited them into a relationship with the Lamb himself. A personal relationship, I think, where they could learn to unpack both the unfilled longings that they felt before they even had the words to articulate them and to find the one who would fulfill them in ways they didn't even yet know. What they would find was utterly life-changing. They found a truly fresh start. The freedom of real forgiveness. Something and someone they were willing to live and die for. The identity of being his beloved. Don't we all want to be loved? I think one of the points in John's gospel, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. I think he's discovered the best possible identity in the world is to be one who is loved by Jesus. And they will discover a destiny that is rooted not in in what they can do, but in his victory, the victory of the Lamb who died for them. So if you don't know exactly what it is that you're hoping to find in your imaginary box, don't worry. Jesus can help you discover what you really really need. And you can also discover how following him makes all the difference in the world. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, we are told that the lamb at the center of the throne will be also their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you want the Lamb of God? I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, let's pray. Oh, Jesus, as we have been unwrapping your names this Advent season, we have begun to discover in even deeper ways that there are so much depth to you. The Jesus we know, but there's more about this Jesus that we didn't know, that we have yet to discover, that you have yet to reveal to us. But this one thing we know, you are the one worth following. You are the one who knows us far better than we know ourselves. You know exactly what each and every one of us needs. And you know as not only our creator, the one who made us, who knows us inside and out, but also as our redeemer, our savior, the one who gave himself for us. You know what we need to make us whole. And so, we want to follow you. Like those early disciples, we don't know exactly what all this involved, but we know that in you, we will find everything that we have been looking for and need. Amen. Thank you for leading us in worship for the uh, guitar trio before. That was, that was wonderful, wasn't it? And uh, just a reminder that we also have a Christmas Eve service this evening, 6.30. It's not the same, uh, but there are some great things in store. 
if you would uh, love, like to join us, or those who are maybe joined us online, if you'd like to come and join us in person. He was born that we may have life. That is good news, isn't it? I've come that you might have life, he said, and have it abundantly, have it to the full. That's God's dream for us. And that is why he continues to call us to follow him. If you would like prayer, I encourage you, uh, Glenn and Dana Cockle will be available here up at the, at the front in the, uh, immediately following the service and take advantage of that. And if you didn't get any, you know, if you had on your shopping list yet, pick up bread on our way home. There could still be some free Cobb's bread loaves there that you might want to pick up on the, on the way and uh, encourage you to do that. Let us go and serve the Lord and share the good news of what he has done for us and what he is longing to do for our world. Amen? Amen. Amen.